I have a problem, and I know what you're thinking. Just one? <laughs> you know, as opposed to somebody else on the staff who shall remain anonymous, I actually have a fondness for sports. Um, <clears throat> I've, uh, uh, and, and I come by it naturally. I played a lot of sports uh, in junior high and high school, pretty much everything. I followed sports. I was interested in it. I I'm old enough to remember the Stanley Cup parades on Jasper Avenue back in the 80s, so um, I love sports, maybe too much. In fact, you know it's bad when you give up sports talk radio for Lent. I did, because most mornings I would, uh, the only time I'd maybe use Alexa is, Alexa, play TSN 1260 and that comes on, or I take the app on my phone. Um, <clears throat> it was so bad that sometimes when 8.30 rolled around, because there's a particular segment, some of you guys know what I'm talking about, um, I would interrupt my conversation with Tina and say, can we, can, can we pick this up later on? i got to listen to something live. Well, you know the Oilers are praying pretty well last night, a little blemish uh, last night, but maybe if you are also following the Oilers as I do, You'll remember Tuesday night versus San Jose. McDavid scores this incredible overtime goal on this kind of outlet pass from, uh, from the goalie, Mike Smith. Now, one of the things I like to do, because I'm not listening to sports talk radio in the morning anymore, is, uh, is listen to the post-game interviews and kind of hear uh, the players' reflections on the game and kind of hear it live without kind of any uh, nuances as it's reported by the media. And what I've realized is that dumber, or reporters have the capacity to ask really dumb questions. Have you, have you picked up on this? And so somebody, he must have been a San Jose reporter on Tuesday night, asks, 40-plus goals, how impressed are you with yourself of Connor McDavid? I mean, how are you supposed to answer that question? How impressed are you with yourself? What, what should he have said? Well, well. Yeah, it is actually pretty impressive. I mean, I am the best hockey player in the world right now. I don't know if you've not noticed that. I mean, what are you going to say to that? Um, But Connor actually was just being Connor. He just kind of laughs it off. He goes, you know, it's my job to produce, and I try try to do that every night. The best hockey player in the world just kind of shrugs off the opportunity to draw a lot of attention to himself and says, that's just my job. Pretty humble, I think. Well, contrast that to a few months ago when Pastor Adam shared with you how the staff were having a little bit of fun playing Wordle. Do you remember this? That's right. He got up here and he showed his results and said, well, I got it in three guesses. You know, that's that's pretty good. And then he put my score up, which on that particular day, I only got it in five. Well, this past Friday... I had barely got it. So this was my result. Those of you who play World know what this is all about. You're kind of like, those colors are weird. I don't know if you know this. I'm a little colorblind. So there's a, a feature that you can set the contrast a little bit. And so by my third guess, I was pretty close. But it was one of these words that there were way too many options. And by the sixth one, I was like, oh, man, there's a couple more options here. I hope I get it. And I got it. Um, <clears throat> Adam, on the other hand... See, that big X there means that he actually didn't get it. <clears throat> you know what they say, right? Pride comes before uh, You all know it, right? There we go. 
Well, I actually have to give credit where credit is due because Adam was a good sport about it. He made the slide for me so, uh, so that I could publicly embarrass him because I'm incapable of doing that kind of, kind of thing. So, um, so thanks for that. Actually, shout out to uh, Jenna this week on this same puzzle. She got it in four, and Marnie got it in four, and Anne got it in two. Um, I know, pretty impressive, eh? Smart staff, that's what we got. Well, whether it's a hockey game or a word game, the reality is that everyone, every one of us has to guard our hearts against the vice of pride. Because perhaps more than any other of the vices that we've been looking at, pride is deadly and it's destructive. We've been saying that about all of them. But I think what makes pride maybe stand apart a little bit is that it really, as we'll talk about it a little bit more, it's really the root sin of all of the other sins. If you've been following with us, we've been examining these seven deadly sins over the past seven weeks, and today we'll have a closer look at the sin of pride. Pride is, as I said, considered the root sin of all the other deadly sins. In fact, as one writer said, it is the first, the worst, and the most prevalent of the seven. And the roots of pride run deep. Gregory the Great, who is one of those early church fathers who put this list together, he simply said this, pride is the root of all evil. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. He writes, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison Pride leads to every other vice. I love that. Those other things, they're just flea bites in comparison, but pride leads to every other vice. If you stop and just think a little bit about pride, pride keeps us from God. Pride keeps us from one another. Proverbs 8.13 makes it clear that God hates pride and arrogance. Pride is subtle. It's stealthy. It often slides under the radar. And ultimately, pride then destroys relationships, families, organizations, and sometimes even churches. So we should know how to recognize it and what to do about it. And that's what this message is about. So how do we spot pride maybe in our own lives? Excuse me. Well, um, from Brian Hedges and Ken Neatman... I collected four signs of pride, and I'm sure there are many more, but I think these are going to really be helpful to helping us understand pride. Number one, self-promotion, self-promotion. This is where the prideful person is concerned that image is, in fact, everything. Seeking recognition at the expense of others is often a sign of self-promotion. We would attach words like boasting or bragging striving for admiration of other people through our actions. And what's interesting about self-promotion is that we very easily spot it in others, but are often blind to it in ourselves. Think of the the guy who's maybe always name-dropping at the party and so many other examples of it. Luke 14 verse 11 makes it clear what Jesus says this, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. A good verse to keep in mind when we think of self-promotion. You see, pride and boasting was a significant issue in the Corinthian church. 
And Paul wrote to them two letters to address this issue. Now, other issues as well, but it was just that pride had worked its way throughout uh, the people in the church. There's even the famous love chapter that you may be familiar with. Maybe you used it at a wedding, 1 Corinthians 13, where he's really talking about relationships within the context of the church. And he's describing and defining love. And when he's defining it, this is what he includes amongst the definitions there. He says, love does not boast. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. So all of those little phrases are helpful to us understanding pride, and particularly this kind of self-promotion, promoting ourself above everyone else. And the word that is translated there, boasting, is a particular Greek word that Paul uses, and it really is used to describe a pompous windbag. And I think that's just so descriptive when you think about it, right? Just somebody who just is, is full of himself, has, has uh, you know, just an inflated ego, and just incessantly can talk about, it, about um, themselves, right? They go on and on about their accomplishments, their actions, all with the intention of drawing attention uh, to themselves. Brian Hedges writes this, he says, Paul confronts this excessive self-promotion by showing the Corinthians that they have no grounds for boasting outside of the crucified Christ. Though we tend to boast in wealth, power, wisdom, knowledge, and even spiritual experiences, God usually chooses not the wise, powerful, or noble of this world, but the foolish, weak, low, and despised, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's a reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, some of the verses that were read for us earlier. In other words, if we are going to boast about anything, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, we should boast in the Lord. I'll say a little bit more about that later. Uh, another evidence of pride in our lives might be self-pity. Now, this one might surprise you, right? Like, we understand self-promotion. That's the obvious one. But how is self-pity evidence of pride? Now, this isn't so much the kind of woe-is-me kind of self-pity. This is, as Brian Hedges writes, the subtle insecurity and self-consciousness that we often feel in comparison with others. The insecurity and the self-consciousness that we often feel in comparison with others. And so Hedges asks a few questions to test our self-pity. So let me share some with you. Do you ever feel uncomfortable around those who are more educated than you? Do you avoid participation in games or sports out of fear of looking stupid? Do you secretly criticize people who are more physically attractive? Are you afraid of what people think of you? Now, depending on how you answer those questions, this might be more of a sign of pride than we realized. John Piper writes and speaks to this very matter. This is what he writes. He says, boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. 
Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. So we have self-promotion, we have self-pity. Thirdly, we have self-reliance. This form of pride is a dependence on ourselves and our own strength instead of depending on God or even others. You see, when we rely on ourselves, we act and believe like God cannot be trusted. Thomas Aquinas described this as the love of one's own excellence. Sorry, I didn't say that right. The love of one's own excellence. And this form of pride surfaces when we make decisions and we take actions without ever asking God to help us. This is when our actions say, I can do this on my own. I don't need help. I don't need anyone. Many songs in our culture foster that, right? Like, I am a rock. I don't need anyone. I did it my way. So really what we're saying is we are very self-reliant. And fourthly is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. These slides are a little bit out of order um, because this is, I'm coming to that, but that's not number four. So four is self-righteousness. The last evidence of pride is perhaps the most subtle. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable that powerfully exposes those who were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everyone else. This is Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And this was the passage that was read earlier for us. It's short, so let me just read it again. Two men went up to the temple to pray. There was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not greedy or unrighteous. I'm not those adulterers or even like this tax collector over here. Can you just like picture the audacity of this, the way it kind of looks, right? He points at the tax collector. I'm not even like him because I fast twice a week. He starts giving his kind of spiritual resume. I give a tenth of everything I get. Do you hear the me, myself, and I in that? But the tax collector, he's standing far off. He doesn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, the the, uh, Pharisee. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, we get that the Pharisee was full of pride and how wrong it was for him to kind of go through his list of accomplishments, to kind of really boast about himself in front of God. Like, how ironic is that? Doesn't that just seem completely ridiculous? But I think what we have to be careful of is not to then just identify with the tax collector and somehow think, that we're better than the Pharisee. Because if we do that, we're actually just as self-righteous as the Pharisee was. You know what these four signs, I think, ultimately result in when we think of self-promotion and self-pity and self-reliance and self-righteousness? I think it results in other things like a spotty prayer life. Because after all, who needs God? Or weariness, Because I've taken everything on myself. 
maybe a critical spirit, because we, we have a tendency then to bring others down to inflate ourselves. Or we react defensively when we're criticized, probably because I think too highly of myself to begin with. Or I take responsibility for my success. You see, if that's true, perhaps what the real problem is, is that I've lost sight of God's gracious and undeserved provision. But thinking through those four signs or four evidences of pride, did you pick out the common denominator? Self, right? Self-promotion, self-pity, self-reliance, self-righteousness, self. And in short, pride is self-centeredness. It's self-concern. It's self-love. Tony Campolo writes this. He says, pride is arrogant self-worship. It is the sin of exalting oneself and playing, placing one's own interests above the interests of others. Pride craves admiration and even adoration and will not share the, the limelight. Pride deludes its victims into believing that they have no peers and drives them to try to destroy anyone who takes recognition away from them. The proud are in love with themselves and seek to call attention to their admirable qualities. See, the real danger, as I've said, of pride is that it keeps us from God. Because first and foremost, pride makes it difficult for us then to accept the free gift of salvation. We want to be just like the Pharisee. We want to, we want to earn our salvation. We want to work for it. We, we want to share our accolades. But God comes to us and says, no, it's not about that. For it is by faith you have been saved. And this is not of, of yourselves. Why? So that no one can boast. Pride drives us to try to prove our worth to God. Pride keeps us from acknowledging our sin because self always gets in the way. And because image is everything, we protect it at all costs. And that's why pride keeps us from each other. Right? We, we want people to like us, so we put up a false self. And pride keeps us from being open and honest with each other. Because, and, and the problem is, if we're not vulnerable, we can't actually build relationships of trust and integrity. <clears throat> now, I could say more about how <clears throat> pride affects and infects relationships, but the bottom line is that it is absolutely toxic to relationships. According to the National Geographic website, the pufferfish can inflate into a ball shape to evade predators. Also known as blowfish, these clumsy swimmers fill their elastic stomachs with huge amounts of water and sometimes air and blow themselves up to several times their normal size. But these blow-up fish aren't just cute. Most pufferfish contain a toxic substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. The toxin is deadly to humans, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. There's enough poison in one pufferfish to kill 30 adult humans, and there's no known antidote. 
Like pufferfish, human beings can blow themselves up with pride and arrogance to make themselves look bigger than they are. And this pride can become toxic to a marriage, a church, or a friendship. So it's no wonder the late Bible scholar John Stott once said, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. And that, my friends, is the answer to our pride. Humility. You see, humility begins with knowing who we are in Christ. Knowing our identity. Knowing that we are fully known by God. We don't have to hide anything from Him. And yet, we're fully loved. Knowing that we are the beloved son, the beloved daughter of a gracious and loving father. So when Paul writes to the Romans, he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So we don't have to have this like self-deprecating, beat ourselves down, kind of worm theology, I'm good for nothing, uh, I'm such a terrible sinner. That's not it at all. But it's acknowledging that the sin in our lives is what put Jesus on the cross. That's what he died for. And he died instead of us. He died in our place. But we need to hold those in balance and realize that there's stuff in my life that is offensive to God. And so we need to clear that um, from our lives. And the Bible repeatedly links our humility and the quality of our relationship with God. There's well over a hundred verses that speak to the way God views the humble and the proud. Let me give you a few in rapid succession here. Psalm 138 verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Think about what he's saying there. Proverbs 29, verse 23, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Isaiah 66, verse 2, this is the one I, that is the Lord, esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Matthew 23, verse 12, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then James and Peter, James in chapter 4, verse 6, and Peter in 1 Peter 5, 5, they both quote Proverbs 3, verse 34, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about that. God is resistant to the proud, but he extends grace when we humble ourselves, acknowledge our need for God, and he gives us grace. See, the bottom line is that humility is not an option for those who know God. Without it, we don't grow and mature because why would we? We, we don't pay any attention to what God's doing in our lives. Jonathan Edwards wrote, humility is the great and most essential thing in true religion. And Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? 
Those who are humble, those who recognize their true spiritual condition. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is humility? It's not self-hatred or lack of self-confidence. Rather, it is the ability to see yourself through God's eyes. Humility causes us to tremble at God's word. It, it sensitizes us to his voice. It opens our ears to his instructions and it deepens our gratitude. It leads us into deeper confidence and dependence upon God because we know that, in fact, we have a desperate need for him. I mean, just think about some of the verses that you might know. The Bible tells us that God esteems the humble. He dwells with the contrite and lowly. He blesses the poor in spirit. He gives grace to the humble. He guides the humble and he teaches them his way. C.S. Lewis has perhaps the best definition of humility when he writes, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So that's why the psalmist can write in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. Maybe let me just compare pride to humility in a way that's been really helpful for me over the years. Nancy um, Lee um, Volgamuth, she used to be Nancy Lee DeMoss, she runs a ministry called Revive Our Hearts. She's written a book called Brokenness. And then she's, um, she's, she made this long list of comparing proud people versus broken people. And if you want to dive into this further, you could just Google her name or her ministry or proud people versus broken people, and you'll get like even a two- or three-page PDF, a little self-assessment if you like, um, enter at your own risk. Um, but, but if you want to dive in further than that, she has, like I said, a list of like 30. Let me just share maybe, maybe 10 with you and just kind of com- contrast these two, and then maybe this will kind of settle all of this out and we'll come to a, a good understanding then of what pride is and what does humility look like. So here, I'll read off a couple. Proud people focus on the failures of others. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Proud people have a critical, fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. And in contrast, broken people are compassionate. They They can forgive much because they know how much they have been forgiven. Proud people have to prove that they're right. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Proud people claim rights. They have a demanding spirit. Broken people yield their rights. They have a meek spirit. Proud people desire to be a success. Broken people are motivated to be faithful and to make others a success. Proud people are wounded when others are promoted and they are overlooked. Broken people are eager for others to get the credit. They rejoice when others are lifted up. Broken people, or sorry, proud people, feel confident in how much they know. Broken people are humbled by how very much they have to learn. 
Proud people are quick to blame others. Broken people accept responsibility and can see where they are wrong in a situation. Proud people want to be sure that no one finds out when they have sinned. Their instinct is to cover up. Broken people, once broken, don't care who knows or who finds out. They are willing to be exposed because they have nothing to lose. Proud people have a hard time saying, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Broken people are quick to admit failure and to seek forgiveness when necessary. And one more, proud people compare themselves with others and feel worthy of honor. Broken people compare themselves to the holiness of God and feel a desperate need for His mercy. Maybe one more, proud people don't think they have anything to repent of. Broken people realize they have need of a continual heart attitude of repentance. I have a little card and kind of a prayer journal that I keep that um, has this list. And every once in a while I am drawn to it because I know how strongly my tendency is to lean towards pride. And it can be hard on people. And, uh, and so I need to be reminded regularly that God just calls me to walk humbly with Him and with one another. So what do we do with our pride? How do we address it? What do we do with it? Well, we do the same thing that we do with all sin is we acknowledge it and then we confess it and we come before God and we just say, search me. So maybe you're sitting there today and you're kind of going, oh, I didn't know that this was an issue for me, but I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable. And um, there's a few things that have been said that kind of resonated with me, and I'm not sure I want that to resonate with me. But you can ask God and say, what would you show in my life? What do I need to confess? And like all sin, that's the beauty of a relationship with God. He already knows He knows that there's pride in our lives. And so when we come to him and say, God, can you forgive me for my pride? And he's like, absolutely. Maybe we don't see it and we can just say, God, search me and show me maybe where I've been prideful. So first of all, confess our sin and pride. Secondly, pursue God. Pursue God. You know, we when we confess sin, it's not just enough to confess that we need to repent of it, we need to turn away from it, and then run after God and pursue God. You see, humility isn't ultimately the result of willpower, although we can and should humble ourselves, be, be, be intentional about it in that sense. But humility actually is the reflex of a heart captured by a vision of God. God in all of his greatness, all of his glory, all of his holiness, all of his power, all of his majesty, and all of his authority. And in view of who God is, we can then acknowledge our spiritual poverty. We need God. Full stop. We need him. And so we pursue a relationship with him. Thirdly, boast in someone better. Boast in someone better. Because no matter how great we might think of ourselves, there is someone who's better. Boast in the Lord. Boast in Jesus. Boast in what he has done. 
Psalm 34, verse 1 to 3 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. As Brian Hedges writes, the great secret to humility is not to focus on yourself at all, but to fill your mind and heart with the glory of God revealed in the sin-conquering death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lastly, practice silence and solitude. See, sometimes we just need to be quiet. We need to be still. If we talk too much, and particularly if we talk about ourselves too much, that's why silence and solitude is so helpful. Uh, A sermon on the seven deadly sins wouldn't be complete without a Rebecca DeYoung quote, an excellent book on this this whole subject. But let me read this. Excuse me. In silence... We can recognize our anxious affirmation seeking for what it is. A drive to groom an appreciative audience and put ourselves in the best light. Regular practice of the discipline of silence quietly weans us off our over-dependence on human approval ratings. It also provides a break from the voices clamoring with disapproval, including our own. Isn't that great? It weans us off our over-dependence on human approval ratings. You see, in silence, we have no role to play, no reputation to protect. We simply rest in God's loving presence and listen attentively to Him. And in solitude, our audience is removed. And so in stillness, we're invited to receive God's love and just let that take root. That is the beauty and the power of silence and solitude. It's an opportunity that we provide every month at TCC for a day away. It starts at 9 and I think ends at 4, but at 3.30 you kind of come together and share your experience in community. But you spend the whole day in silence in, the, in, in your own room. We do this as a staff every month. And um, we even kind of sit like monks around table uh, eating lunch together, not talking. Do you have any idea how hard that is for me? But it's the discipline of saying no. Friends, I think it's fitting that we've considered the vice of pride on Palm Sunday. We actually planned it that way. Because pride ultimately says, I'm king, I'm lord, I'm master of my own domain, whatever you want to call it. And Palm Sunday says, look, here comes your king, humble and riding on a donkey. And the Pharisees were so filled with pride that they they couldn't handle the praise that was directed at Jesus. He didn't fit their idea of a king, and they wanted to rule in their way. So Jesus entering into Jerusalem in the way that he did was a major blow to the pride of the Pharisees. And maybe that's just what we needed to. As we enter into Holy Week, we get our eyes off ourselves, we acknowledge our pride, and we turn our eyes to the coming King because He's the King of Kings. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for your word. We know that it can sometimes cut. But I pray, Father, that your spirit would take that which is true in our lives, reveal it for what it is, and know that this ugly, often subtle sin that just finds its way into our lives. We spend so much of our lives seeking approval and affirmation when really, Lord, we already have it from you. So what should it matter from other people? So I pray, Father, that you would show me, that you would show each of us just maybe where and how this particular vice has got a grip on our hearts, and that we would confess it to you, we would pursue our relationship with you, we would boast in what Jesus Christ has done and what he has done alone on the cross. And we would get away by ourselves in silence, sitting with you, being mindful of your great love for us, and learning to say no to ourselves so that we can say yes to something better. So, Lord, help us to take our eyes off ourselves and put them squarely on your Son Jesus who is the King of kings. In Jesus' name we pray.